I could be mistaken, but I, I don't believe that I've ever used the same sermon opener two weeks in a row. But I'm going to do so today. You say, why is that? You're not feeling too well? <laughs> well, I'm going to do so because last week's passage was a two-part passage. And also, what I said last week, I want you to hear it again. I think it's that important. So, this is what I said last week. I said that, in my opinion, every Christian wants to have a fruitful ministry. Every Christian wants to have a fruitful ministry. Now, by fruitful, I mean that we want to make a difference eternally, right? We want to know that our lives made a difference and an impact for the kingdom of God. We want to contribute to people becoming followers of Christ and strengthening the church. We want to know that our prayers made a difference, our Bible reading made a difference, our giving made a difference, as well as our service. Everyone wants to make a difference, to leave a mark, to leave a legacy, to see tangible results from our lives. We all want to have a fruitful ministry. And yes, every Christian has a ministry. You do not have to be a pastor to have a ministry. Every Christian has been equipped by God with at least one spiritual gift to serve the church and given the Holy Spirit to empower them. And you know what? We all have the same Bible in front of us, don't we? There's not a secret copy for pastors. We all have the same Bible. And we all have influence in some capacity to influence others around us, whether, is it, whether it is at work, at school, whether it's in our neighborhoods, at home with our children, in the church, or whatever. We all have spheres of influence. Now, there are different levels of influence, right? Different levels of fruitfulness. One person might be remarkably fruitful. The other person may not be as fruitful. But every Christian can and should be fruitful and have a fruitful ministry. Now the question arises as to what are the characteristics of a fruitful ministry? Well, I think if we should listen to anybody on this topic, we should listen to the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, he is the single most influential person other than Jesus himself when it comes to the spread and impact of Christianity. So in our passage today, Paul describes four characteristics of fruitful ministry. These are characteristics that are prerequisites. You need to possess these characteristics and to display these characteristics. And the good news is, is that every Christian can, um, can have these characteristics if they will obey God's word. Last time we discussed two characteristics, boldness and integrity. Today we will discuss two more characteristics. Fruitful ministry requires love, and fruitful ministry requires exhortation. Love and exhortation. So as we continue our series this morning on the Thessalonian letters, let me invite you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay, Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles in, in front of you, it's found on page 986, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
And so now picking up here with the third characteristic of a fruitful ministry, it requires love. Requires love. So everybody there, let's read verses 7 to 9. This is where we're picking up from last week where we covered verses 1 to 6. So Paul writes, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So, fruitful ministry requires love. And Paul begins by talking about how him and his team were gentle among the Thessalonians. And specifically, he talks, he compares himself to a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, both men and women have been given a sense, I believe, when they have children, a natural sense of gentleness to their children. But I think most of us would agree that mothers in general are given a larger dose of gentleness to care for their kids, right? I mean, usually you don't see moms putting their kids in headlocks or holding their kids upside down by their feet, right? Or seeing how high they can throw them in the air. I love that picture there. As the father sees, as the child sees, as the mother sees. Probably pretty accurate, right? So of all the human relationships, the mother-child relationship is the most tender and nurturing. Mothers have a gentle touch. I can still remember, though it's long ago, just the words and touches that my mom gave to me when I was a little boy. By the way, moms, make sure you give as as much of those touches as you can to those kids because they'll never have that the rest of their lives and they will always treasure those memories. So it's quite remarkable that Paul compares their gentleness to a nursing mother. Where did that come from? Well, this gentleness sprang from their deep love for them. As he says, look back at the passage, he says they were affectionately desirous of you. The, the standard biblical Greek dictionary says of that word, quote, it says to have a strong yearning, a strong yearning. Paul and his team deeply loved the Thessalonian church. Consequently, it led to certain results, right? He mentions how they were willing to share the gospel with them. We've talked before how they received a lot of persecution, basically run out of town because of them sharing the gospel, right? But they were willing to share the gospel with them. Now, the gospel is the message of Christianity. The gospel declares that human beings are sinful and worthy of judgment because God is a perfect and holy judge. But God loves us so much that he sent his son, didn't he? To die for us on the cross. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. And he died on the cross, not for his sin, but as a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And then he rose from the dead three days later to show his power over death. 
And he offers forgiveness of sin and eternal life to those who believe in him. That is the gospel, my friends. Have you ever believed in the gospel? That is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life, to know Christ. So if we desire a fruitful ministry, friends, our love will compel us to share the gospel with others, won't it? Our love will compel us to share the gospel. But also because of his great love for them, Paul and the others on his ministry team were willing to share their own selves. Did you catch in verse 9? How Paul gave that example of when they first started the church there in the city of Thessalonica. How it was Paul's practice when he would go to a new city to start a church. That he would work to provide for himself. Because he did not want to be a burden on a new church. Right? Once that that church was established, then Paul expected that church to be able to financially support Because this was part of discipleship. But in those beginning days, Paul worked hard so that these these Christians, these new believers, would not have to work. He worked long hours not to be a burden on them. Now, as a footnote, you might wonder, how on earth did Paul work these long hours and also start a church, right? In a matter of probably a few months, What's interesting, because Paul was a tent maker, that meant that he probably worked in a leather shop where he would make tents, repair tents, as well as other leather items, woven goods, and so forth. Now, what's interesting is that back in this day, workplaces were often venues where commercials, commercialization and and conversations would take place, right? Where people would gather at these workplaces and they would talk about things. Kind of maybe like the barber shop used to be in, in America and, and still in, in some African American communities where people come and business is being transacted, but it's also a place for people to come and talk, right? And I think that's what was happening with Paul is that he was working these long hours, but he was able to share the gospel while he worked with bystanders and these customers. Now, I think it's safe to assume that Paul also shared out in public, as we see him do in Athens in in Acts 17. And we read earlier how he had an open door with his Jewish brethren at the synagogue. But I think primarily Paul's evangelism was done at work. That's fascinating, isn't it? And so he worked hard. So he would, getting back to our point here, out of love, Paul worked hard so that he would not be a burden on this new church. He loved these believers dearly, just like a mother is willing to sacrifice and give of herself for her children. This past week I read a a gripping story about the massive earthquake that struck China back in 2008. You guys remember that? It's a really... Terrible earthquake. About 90,000 people lost their lives or were presumed dead after being declared missing. Now, during the rescue efforts, they found a woman um, underneath the rubble of her house. The team leader, after looking inside, realized that she had died. And so they had moved on to the next house. Well, the team leader, as he was going to the next house, just felt compelled to go back to that house. And as he did, he started searching around, and next thing you know, he's yelling out, 
a baby is still alive. A baby is still alive. And so what they did is they carefully removed the debris and found a baby boy underneath the woman, his mother. Apparently, the mother shielded the child by putting her hands palmward down on the ground and bent over. And so the child was underneath her. And she took the debris on top of her. And when they found her, the little boy was there wrapped in a quilt. When the doctor examined the baby, he found a cell phone wrapped in the quilt. The mother had left a message on the phone. Quote, dear baby, if you survive, please remember that I love you forever. What affection that mother has for the child. And I imagine many of the mothers here would do the same thing. Friends, as we seek a fruitful ministry, there must be a deep affection that causes us to love others the way a mother loves her child. Yes, there will never be those deep natural bonds, but friends, God gives you a new heart to have a strong love for others. God changes how we see other people so that we do have that type of affection for them. You know, we should never say that we will be happy to help somebody, but not really like them or love them, right? Just to kind of go through the motions and help someone along, but we really don't like that person or love that person. God doesn't do that with us, does he? He doesn't go through the motions with us. He genuinely loves us. And God can give you a love for people, even those who aren't very lovable, those who might say stuff about you, those who might wrong you, those who might accuse you. God can give you a love for them. And we need that if we're to have a fruitful ministry. Amen? And then God will also compel you to carry out deeds for them. Likewise, we should never say that we love somebody, but yet we're not willing to lift a finger, right? We know what the Bible says about that. Rather, we should be willing to inconvenience ourselves, get out of our comfort zones, to to change our schedule, to lay aside our desires for that other person's benefit. So friend, let me ask you, where are you right now when it comes to having a heart like that? A love that sees and has that deep affection for others. Do you need to ask God to expand your heart? You know what? He will. 1 Peter 1.22 commands us, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Friends, if God commands it, then by His grace, we can live that out. Amen? Amen. So fruitful ministry requires love. Requires love. Fruitful ministry, fourthly, requires exhortation. By that, I mean that not only are we encouraged, or expected, I should say, to encourage people to live as God commands, but there are times that we are to exhort them, we are to urge them. In other words, the Christian ministry 
is not only coming up sometimes and putting our arm around somebody that's hurting, but it also requires that we give them a gentle shove forward, right? Shove, gentle, not, you know, a gentle shove so that they are propelled forward. Let's see what Paul says here. First Corinthians, or Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12, he says, You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now recall, as I said here, Paul and his team, they were driven out because of false accusations made against them by these different opponents of Christianity. And so apparently Paul, even after he had left, he was in a different city now, these false accusations were still being levied against him. And so Paul felt the need to, to speak of his integrity. Notice how he, 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 his, his conduct was exemplary. Their conduct was holy, righteous, and blameless. Moreover, he compares his ministry to a father with his children. Now, like gentleness, I think mothers and fathers both should want to exhort their children but again, I think in general, fathers have maybe a, a little stronger, stronger inclination to make demands on their kids and to expect things from them. Unfortunately, we know that fathers can sometimes exasperate their children. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, don't exasperate your children. My kids like to quote that verse to me. Usually undeserved, in my opinion. But hey, at least they're quoting scripture. I like that. So Paul and his team, they're exhorting the Thessalonian church. What did they exhort him to do? What did it say? To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So that metaphor of walking is often used by Paul. He likes to use this in his letters to the churches. You say, what is he getting at there? He's getting at your lifestyle, right? When uh, you, you live your day, you walk around, don't you? Now we keep track of how many steps we take. But you walk around during the day. And it's, it's characteristic of your life, isn't it? It's how you conduct yourself. It's your lifestyle. We still use that language today, don't we? You better walk the walk, right? So we're saying your lifestyle, your conduct better match what you say. So what was their lifestyle supposed to look like? Paul and his team exhorted them to live a lifestyle worthy of God. Did you get that? That is so important. That is so important. And you see it's important how Paul uses that same language to a lot of other churches. This idea of walking worthy of God. First, or excuse me, Ephesians 4.1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1.10, he prays that the church there would be, quote, that they would, quote, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Do you think it's important to Paul? So as Christians, we're supposed to be different, aren't we? Not perfect at all. We know that. 
But we are supposed to be different, to live different, not to be a a goody two-shoes so we can brag about how good we are. No, but we've been given this high calling, this high standard, and the more you look to that standard, the more you realize you're really not that great, God, because God is the standard, isn't he? You don't go around patting yourself on the back if you're trying to live a life worthy of God, but you do shoot for what you see there. And specifically, notice that Paul says, He has called us, God has called us into his kingdom and glory. You guys still paying attention? This is powerful. I want you to listen to this. So he says off, to start off, God has called us. God has called us. Did you know that in, in in the Greek language, the word ekklesia, you know, we have that in English now, ecclesiastical, ecclesiology. That word ekklesia, do you know what it meant? Called out. The church is the called out ones. We are called out of sin. We're called out of judgment. We're called out of darkness. We have been called out by God. He has called us out of those things, and he continues to call us forward, doesn't he? It's not a one-stop deal there. We continue to go forward to this future goal that we might enter into God's kingdom and glory. What does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? Jesus talks about this all the time, doesn't he? So what is the kingdom of God? What is ministry? Jesus refers to this as the redemptive reign of God in the world. In other words, God rules over the world, always has, always will, in that kind of general sense. But the kingdom of God is God's reign of redemption coming into this world, which Jesus inaugurated, and now spreading through the world, right? Jesus inaugurated, he started it, he said, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He brought forgiveness of sin, he brought reconciliation with God by his death on the cross. So the kingdom of God has landed, it's set up a beachfront here and it's spreading, but the kingdom of God isn't done, isn't it? The kingdom of God is also referring to the future. When Jesus returns, he will establish his complete and final reign over creation. So in our passage here, is Paul talking about the kingdom of God for the future or the present? I think he's talking about the future because he talks a whole lot about the return of Christ in this letter. So when we are walking in a man, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God, that kingdom that has been established now and is coming one day in the future. We're also to walk in a manner worthy of the glory of God. You say, what is that? Well, the Bible teaches that God is spirit. We can't see him in his essence. But when God does decide to reveal himself to a person, he usually does so with a sense of great radiance and brilliance so that you know God is present. and And what the scripture calls the glory of God. Scripture also teaches that when the kingdom of God comes in the future, we're going to receive resurrected bodies. Aren't you looking forward to that one day? Resurrected bodies that never tire, age, or die. But also... Our resurrected bodies will be glorious. Somehow, we are going to share in the glory of God. Now, obviously, we will not be God. That's impossible. But we will share in the glory of God in some way that we don't presently. 
I love to think about that. Philippians 3, 20 to 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, listen to this, to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So we are to walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God and the glory of God. So what Paul's getting at here is that that future event that we're waiting for should affect how we live our daily lives. Makes me think about a couple getting married. Their wedding should be a wonderful occasion, right? At least that's what they're hoping for. That's why they're spending all that money, right? That wedding is in the future, but it affects their daily lives, doesn't it? There's a whole lot of things you got to do to get ready for a wedding, right? Find a place to get married. Find a clergyman or a state official to conduct a ceremony. Flowers, caterers, photographers, videographers, invitations, receptions, honeymoon, and on and on and on. It seems like it never ends, right? There is a lot to do. You spend a lot of time. And so that future event affects your daily life, doesn't it? But it doesn't end there, does it? Most people realize, okay, I'm going to get married, and so they want to try to look their best, don't they? They know that they're going to try to look their best for their spouse. They're going to be in tons of photographs that will go on for time and memorial, right? They're going to see people they haven't seen in forever, so they want to look their best. And so people will join the gym, and, and the bride will go and take a lot of time and select the perfect dress. The groomsmen will take 10 minutes and go pick a tux out somewhere. <laughs> but perhaps most of all, you're setting yourself aside for that person. I would not advise someone to set a wedding date and then to tell their future spouse that they would like to keep on dating other people. Not going to go very well. Your future wedding greatly affects your daily life as you prepare for that day and as you try to live worthy of that wedding, right? No one wants to have a wedding where the arrangements are terrible or you look terrible and so forth. You want to have a wedding in a sense where you are prepared in a worthy fashion for that day. Likewise, Paul is reminding us that we have a day waiting for us, don't we? The greatest day. And we need to prepare now for that day. We need to live now for that day. And it should affect every aspect of our lives. Our finances. Our speech. Our, our relationships. Our time. And so on. Friends, because of our future calling to the kingdom of God. And to his glory. It should affect how we live in a manner worthy of this great calling. Right, church? And one final thing. We should live this out ourselves, right? This should be our consuming passion of our lives. But as we want a fruitful ministry, we also want to exhort others to do so, don't we? The Christian life is not an individual pursuit. It's a team, team effort, isn't it? So in this sense, we're all wedding planners. 
Never thought of that one before, have you, for the Christian life? But we need to be helping others get ready for that great day, right? When Christ returns. Hebrews 10, 24-25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Isn't that powerful? So friends, if you see people making great strides in their Christian walk, their lifestyle, you know what we need to do? We need to urge them onward, right? Or if you see somebody who's maybe straying off the course or getting snared up in sin, we need to lovingly encourage them and exhort them if need be because we all have an obligation to one another. All of us are called to be our brother's keeper and our sister's keeper. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful picture that we have been given by the Apostle Paul about fruitful ministry. Lord, every Christian wants a fruitful ministry. God, we ask that you would help us to implement these things in our lives. Lord, it is not a matter of us just rolling up our sleeves. We know that we need your grace to change our hearts so that we have a deeper and more profound love for others, that our feelings and affections would change, as well as being motivated and compelled to serve by our deeds. And Lord, we pray that we would also take heed to these words about the need to exhort one another. Lord, you have called us to come alongside of each of us in the race, and to encourage and exhort each other as we strive to the finish line. And Lord, we pray that we would keep that in mind, that future date, that it would indeed guide our daily lives as we think about that time when you will return and you will establish your final reign. Lord, we pray that we would be ready for that great kingdom of God and the glory of God that you will bestow. Lord, may, may it motivate our hearts and challenge and stretch us each and every day. Lord, we thank you for this time again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen.